The end of this episode is going to bring you a special treat, which is a meditation by Lisa Guyman to bring us peace, calm, and a sense of healing and insight. Because you'll see towards the middle of the episode, just as we're talking about the challenges that technology might bring to families who have to do online schooling, we got through our own set of technological challenges that we decided to keep in the show just to model reality for you. Together today, we riff with Alicia Biggs, a fellow mom and a black woman who works in equity and diversity in public schools about our biggest concerns about schooling, COVID, and what on earth we can do, if anything at all, to help ourselves and others during this bonkers time. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and how to be more anti-racist. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. I'm so excited to start this conversation about education, public and private education, and what on earth we're going to do this fall with COVID in the mix. And so can we all just talk about who we are in this conversation and where we are in relation to public schools? I'm Sarah. I have two children in the public education system in Denver, Colorado. My name's Alicia Biggs, and I have also have two kids, two daughters in the education um, system, and I've worked in the public education system for over 30 years. And I'm Misasha. I have two boys, and we are in the Bay Area, and both of my boys go to an independent private school. And can we talk color mix for a second here? My kids are a little bit Asian, but mostly present as white within this context. And our listeners know I'm half Japanese, half white, married to a white Canadian guy. I'm an African-American woman, single mom, adopted my two daughters. And one of my daughters is Native American and African-American. And the other daughter is Hispanic and African-American. And I also, I should say this, I do have a son that's 35 that is African-American. And you work in equity within the school district. So you bring a really cool lens to this conversation, not just being a parent. Absolutely. So my role is I'm the director of diversity, equity, and recruitment. And so it's really trying to recruit more children of color into some of our schools that are mostly all white. And my sons are half black, quarter Japanese, quarter white. So we are sort of the diverse family in each grade that my children are in at our school for at least definitely the diverse black family. There are some other Asian children, but the large mix of that school is white. So I'm glad we're having the conversation with the three of us because I think we represent at least some more diversity and attitudes and thoughts and experiences when it comes to education and when it comes to the schools. When you think about schooling this fall, and some schools are already starting now in August, but what's the first thing that comes to your mind? I think for me, the first thing that comes to my mind for this fall is, one, is that I want our children to be safe. I'm concerned that many schools are starting and we still don't know how or if our kids are going to get sick and or our teachers. And so that's the first thing that comes to my mind is the safety of our teachers, um, having them, making them go back into a classroom with children. And I don't know if we really figured out how we can keep our teachers and our children safe. That's the first thing that comes to mind. 
that's much more eloquent than my response because mine was just like <laughs> <it's a> cluster. <laughs> like I don't know. You know, and it's hard for me to process it because I feel like I need to acknowledge that I'm in a position of privilege where I work from home. And so, and I'm really flexible with my schedule. So I can prioritize my kids' safety. If I really feel like they need to stay home, I can do that. And so I feel more like frustrated at the outward response because I agree that we don't know the safety. Going back to school in person is not going to look like it did last fall with masks and distancing and no lunch, you know, in the cafeteria, that sort of stuff. And I'm frustrated at the lack of overarching federal response. But at the core of it, I still feel pretty calm when I think about my kids. Yeah, I think you wrote down dumpster fire in the notes for me, which, you know, that was my 2019 word. I feel like we've surpassed dumpster fire, like whatever the stage is past that point, we're kind of in that. I have so many mixed feelings about this because my kids are young and kindergarten over Zoom was a that was a dumpster fire, actually. I can't think of a better way to describe how that went. And for parents of younger children, I know that it requires inner distance learning if you're fortunate enough to have internet capabilities and a device in your house it requires constant supervision. So for the parents who cannot do that, I just have all these feelings for them because I do have the luxury of being able to do my legal work at night and being able to work the podcasting around, you know, my kids' safety. So, and in the Bay Area, we've had so many, you know, openings and closings and shutdowns and openings. And so I think there's just so much uncertainty. Like I feel a lot of uncertainty around what this looks like for everyone. And I would agree. I think, you know, I wish they came up with a decision of what they were going to do, districts and our schools and, the, and our governors. Because what happens is, is that they keep changing it. And so families finally get to be not okay, but start to deal with what the schools have shared. And then two weeks later, they change it again and again and again. And so I wish, I just want it to be something that parents can know that's going to happen and be able to then make arrangement for their kids. Now we know, and I know from working in the school system, that many of our children of poverty or children who parents do not are not savvy with computers and do not have computers or technology in their home and are working, you know, in places that stayed open, like McDonald's or Taco Bell or just those kind of places, had to go to work post office, you know, and so they left their kids home by themselves. And if your kids have not, and many of our kids haven't, have already set up the stability of learning at home, the education did not continue and they did not do remote last year. So that was three and a half months of no education for these kids, which now we look at they're farther behind their peers whose parents had the ability to stay home with them, to work at night, to be able to help them with their education, make sure they stayed, you know, on task and engaged, even though even with kindergartners, I'm sure it was extremely difficult because that's not developmentally appropriate for a five or six year old to stay on a computer all day. But I really am concerned about our children of poverty or children of color who are fall- falling farther behind in their education than their peers. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, that just jumps into this conversation about what do we wish other parents would think about? Because, you know, we each have our fears about schooling right now for safety, 
you know, we all want what's best for our kids. And I think that describes, or, you know, the motivation between the scramble for pods and tutors and teachers and that sort of stuff for our own children. And I think in our recent episode, even Colin Seal said, like, I don't begrudge the parents that knee-jerk reaction because we all do, we have to acknowledge that we do want what's best for our own children. But I think when we broaden that scope and we remember that these are all our children, these are all this next generation of kids we're going to take care of us when we're older, we're in a really tough spot right now. I think, you know, I well, and I was telling you, Sarah, how I love the Nice White Parents podcast because I think one thing that has come into really sharp relief in this COVID period is that we are sort of largely, as a country, I feel like we look at the very short game, right? We look at this independent, like very small thing of what's in it for me right now. And I think that this, like education, like equity, this we have to look at the long game. And I wish that we, and I know that this is difficult because of that knee-jerk reaction and because you, everyone has fear and uncertainty around what is happening right now within your own family, but especially for people who are in the position of not having to worry about certain things and are not concerned with the financial aspect of, you know, a $25,000 homeschooling pod for the year. Like this is the time where we, we need to look at the long game for everyone because our COVID response was largely individual and that has been problematic. And when we think about, for example, why do we wear our masks, right? We wear our masks for everyone, for ourselves, for everyone, to keep everyone safe. And just like in education, we need to be thinking about that long game. Like, what does that look like for everyone? Because if we are widening that equity gap with this year, or, you know, who knows what it will look like how long this will last, then what does that look like for the next generation? And we know we can draw that line through policies and procedures that have widened that equity gap throughout generations. And so if we're really in it, and especially this groundswell of support around racial justice and equity for everyone, we have to look at the long game. And I think we are too busy looking at the immediate short game. And I understand that. I understand the impulse. But it has to be a more intentional response, I think, at least from the parents that I'm seeing have conversations in our area about, you know, trying to rush for that, the nanny to get or the homeschool pod to get, you know, your two kids prepared for the year. I understand that. But we have all these other kids in our communities to serve as well. I mean, Alicia, didn't you mention that people were asked, I mean, you're in the education system and people have asked you to start pods, like they've offered to like, can you tell me about that? Like what people have said to you in particular? Sure. I mean, I think right now, I think all parents, especially in this area, are, are reaching out to educators that they're familiar with and asking them to take on a pod to help their kids. And they're forming their own pods of six to eight kids and to be able to pay for someone to really support their kids. You know, I think the two different groups of parents that have reached out to me the one thing that I feel really good about is both parents understand that they have the privilege to be able to do this. And so they've also said, you know, do you know of two other kids whose parents can't afford a pod that we can financially support to add to this group? And I think, you know, what I did do is I sent out a couple of articles to both groups of parents and just said, you know, read these articles that are talking about the inequity of what pods are doing to some of our kids, especially our kids of color. And so that you really understand, you know, the effect of pods 
having the the kids, the privileged kids that are able to do that, yes, they will continue. They'll have their education. They will be fine. But those kids that cannot afford it, what's going to happen to them? And as you said, it's like it's just making the achievement gap get farther and apart. And what's going to happen long term to these kids? What's going to happen long term to our society if these kids are not educated? And so even, I mean, I know that there's a place here in Denver that's doing, the whole place is doing pots where kids can then do like gymnastics and karate during the school day as their electives. And I, it's so wonderful that people are doing this. But again, it's short term and they're not understanding the effect that's going to happen on the kids that cannot afford to do that. I think, you know, to join this, it's like $70 a day. For many families, $70 a day. You know, it's just what, do I put that money towards my child's education or do I put that money towards, you know, my rent? And of course they need that rent. And so they're not going to be able to do this. And I think it puts a guilt on families, the guilt of, I am not in that position to pay for that. Myself, I'm in education. I couldn't afford $70 a day to send my kids to something like that. And so I think, you know, I am lucky enough that my kids have the stability and the structure to stay home and to do their academics and they're going to be okay. But so I'm not worried about them. My kids will stay home. They will not go to school this year. But I am concerned about the other kids who don't have that structure, whose parents aren't savvy in education to be able to support them and to be able to help them and or get tutors for them. And so what's going to happen to those kids? I mean, are we thinking about that? Is our society really taking time and planning for those kids? That's the question. No, and especially, I've said, I'm glad my kids are the age they are at, because I think like you, Alicia, they are able to handle homeschooling and computer work and that sort of stuff on their own if they need to. But I think about the two age groups of the teenagers who need socialization, structure, whatever. And to me, based on what you just said, if they are in a situation where they don't have access to computer technology or parents to who can guide them, and they go out and they hang out with their buddies or do whatever, like you know, Misasha and I are reading the new Jim Crow right now together with our book club. And you just think about how those kids who are already deemed, especially black boys, deemed a threat, right? Starting in like what, sixth grade? Or like fourth or fifth, going to be honest. Fourth. Oh, wow. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then they're out, they're getting picked up by the cops. Like that feels like that's going to start feeding into the system of mass incarceration, mm-hmm. potentially, right? If you go doomsday scenario, but not improbable. And then I also think about the young kids like me, Sasha, you were mentioning your kids, but like from my basic non-educated, but just as a parent understanding of human development, those ages from like two to six mm-hmm. in terms of child brain, human development are critical. And you can never retrieve that time. Like you can't be like, we're going to leave you alone and not educate you, socialize you, do any of that stuff. And then suddenly, you know, COVID's gone and you're eight years old and we'll teach you all the things you should have learned. I feel like we're really missing out on this piece if we don't, you know, there was already a push to focus on early childhood education and try to make universal preschool a thing. And now if we have nothing and parents need to ignore those kids who are in that age range in order to put food on the table, you'll never get that time back with those kids. How are we supporting those little ones who are affected through absolutely zero fault of their own and who also cannot fend for themselves at all? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I think you're absolutely right. My 
experience is mostly in early childhood. And you're absolutely right. From birth to six years old is the most important time of a child's life. And for our ECE and our kindergartner kids, it is so important that they have that social piece to be able to develop and to be able to grasp those milestones that are so important. I think that right now, especially in our district, they're really trying to push that ECE comes back to school now in a safe way while other kids are staying home. I know that private early childhood programs are still going on. If you can afford that, parents are able to take their kids there. But again, it's those parents that can afford it. Just a quick note, I just in our area, Sarah, I reached out to every single privately and or franchise childcare center, early childhood center, and none of them take CCAP, which means they're not accepting kids that can't pay full price, not one of them. And so what happens to those families? And that's the reason, and you know, and I don't, I'm not trying to acknowledge my center, but that's why I want, I'm opening up a center that will take all CCAP kids because I'm really full terrible and concerned about our children of color, our children of poverty, who are not able to access early childhood. And our home in the area, 70% of the kids from birth five are home with grandparents. That's who's taking care of them. And the grandparents are not savvy in education as far as teaching what kids need to know. And so kids come to kindergarten way behind their peers. A kindergartner needs to know 5,000 words to be successful. And we searched that our kids of poverty only know about 1,000 words. That's a huge difference. And so if we continue with remote learning and these young kids can do not get the education, just think how farther and farther behind they're going to be from their peers. And when do they get caught up? And we all know that fourth grade is the grade where kids unconsciously, but in their mind, decide that they're going to drop out of school then it's in the fourth grade. And why is that? It's because, I mean, kindergarten to third grade, they're learning to read. In fourth grade, they're reading to learn. So if they haven't mastered reading, which if they're not in, a, in an appropriate, structured, academic place to learn that, then in fourth grade, they're lost. And then they begin to feel their self-esteem gets lowered. They know they can't do it. They get farther and farther behind. And by the time they're in middle school, they drop out of school. They're gone. And so I think that's where we have to stop and say, we really have to think about not just taking care of our own right now, but taking care of our community right now and making sure that all kids have the access to education. Wow. I mean, I've heard that phrase before, but it feels even more poignant now when you think about how young kids are. I mean, third grade is like you're kind of in the eight to nine-year-old range. Imagine a nine-year-old being like, you know what, I'm going into fourth grade and I don't understand what's happening and I think I'm going to drop out. These are babies. These are little, little human beings who feel so badly about themselves or who are in such a dire strait because not through their own fault, just because of the way their life has been so far, they're unable to learn in the same, I don't even know what the right phrase is, but you know, when you talked about opening up childcare centers and that sort of stuff, two thoughts came to mind. One was like, can families who afford it, like, can we create scholarship funds that go from, you know, the pockets of the wealthy and then they go and then they sponsor two, three, four, five-year-olds to go to early childhood education centers that are open right now. That would be amazing. 
And then at the same time, I'm like, why is the government not doing this? Why should it come from people's pockets? Why should it have to come from people's pockets, right? So I don't know. It's obviously a state or you know, district by district decision. There's no federal oversight on these things. But we can't wait. It's, I mean, right now we can't wait for the government to be like, actually, here's universal preschool available for all starting this year. I don't think that they have the budgets for that, right? We do in Denver. We have Denver Preschool Program, which any four-year-old can go to a preschool. But you have to pay. Well, it's based on your income. Okay. So, and so that really helps. However, there are in, in our area where we live, the child care centers don't accept it because they can get full pay and they have a huge wait list. So then why do we have it? Do you know what I mean? If, they, if there's no child care centers or early education programs that accept it, then that's very difficult for families. They're lost. They're out there. And so now they leave their kids with their great grandmother or their grandmother to be able to take care of them. We have sort of a similar, not all schools, even in Silicon Valley, which I think people think of as a homogenous, very, you know, tech focused, wealthy area, we have pockets of extreme wealth and extreme poverty. And I think that we also have this similar issue with how our preschools function and our preschools are not at every school site. And it's very, it can be very competitive to get into it, which sort of is mind boggling, but we have the same financial issues and the same, you know, issues overall with access, which is frustrating. And I, you know, when you both were talking, I was thinking about the conversation, Sarah, that you and I had with Alvin Irby of Barbershop Books and just the concept of if you are a young kid and you don't have any role models even reading to you, right? Anyone in your house who's reading a book, who has the time to read a book to you because they're not working three jobs and they're not just trying to make the ends meet, then your ability to learn reading, especially in a time where your school, you're not able to go to a school, is really, you are going to be that much further behind. And so Black boys who largely, the need that Alvin Irby was feeling with Black boys not having Black male role models who ever read in their lives, you know, and how were they going to learn to love to read? And if you're taking that away, you you know, the barbershops are closed and their schools aren't open. And they're at home, they're not getting that access and they're not in a pod, you know, because their parents are choosing to pay rent because they need to. And maybe it's one parent, maybe it's two parents. You know, you just think about that's such a stark example of how that gap is widening. It's not a slow widening either. It's kind of, it's fast. It really is. I mean, and that Alvin Irby episode you're just talking about is actually going to air the week after people are listening to this one. And they really talk about this identity that kids get, like Alicia, you were saying, like this feeling of I am a reader or I am a learner or I am capable. Who's there to provide that for the kids whose parents are working to make ends meet and they don't get that kind of reinforcement. But, you know, I think also what happens in our society then is that people begin to think that, well, then these parents don't care. They don't care about their kids' education. They don't care. And I have to push back all the time. This is when you have to, we talked a little bit about this yesterday, Sarah, where you have to stand up and say, stop. Like every parent cares about their kid and what's best for their children. But when you're looking at paying for a pod or paying to get them in an early childhood center versus paying your rent, having food on the table for your kids, having to work maybe two jobs. So you have to leave your child at home at six or seven. I mean, I just think even... During the last remote, I was reaching out to families and checking in with some of our families. And there was a grandmother who was taking care of her daughter who was seven. The grandmother worked 12-hour days. She could not afford for anyone to watch her child. So 
So the seven-year-old was at home all day by herself. Seven-year-old made breakfast, got her own lunch, got her own dinner. And everyone was concerned, why isn't she on school? Why hasn't she, you know, gone online or, or turned in any work? And I'm thinking, she's surviving. You can't do education when you're just trying to survive. And that's what was happening. And then people mentioned, should we call social services because she's seven and she's home by herself? And I'm saying, that's only going to put the family with more issues. It's like, we have to respect that not all families are like the ones that we think they should be. And we have to respect that the grandmother is doing the best she can for the seven-year-old. And as long as the seven-year-old is safe, I mean, I think it's like, where do we draw the line? Like people just quickly want to call social services because that family is not like every other family. And or that child is not engaged in the remote learning. But we have to stop and think, but this child is also surviving every day and just trying to figure out how to be an adult in a seven-year-old body. That is so powerful and important to think about because doesn't that reveal our bias, our lack of creativity in imagining that there are alternate ways to live in this society? And I remember being in a school setting once where the teachers were being told, Please don't make the assumption that because the parent doesn't show up or can't make it to parent-teacher conferences, that they don't care about their child's education. They might be working their second shift, or that might be their one window to sleep before they go to their overnight shift. We need to get to know each family and their circumstances. And that really ties into so much of what Misasha and I talk about, which is just, can we please see the humanity in everybody, like before we jump to conclusions, because, you know, Misasha, when you were saying this stuff, and when everyone was talking about how you have to make the choice between rent and all these other things, I mean, it reminded me of a couple of things. One was that conversation we had with the team from Period Kits, where people are in the store being like, I'm a woman and I'm having my menstrual period. Can I afford to buy basic period supplies? Or do I buy the cup ramen for my family for the week? And so people have to make really, really tough decisions in this world, in our city, in our communities. And then I think about taking that a step further. What if then they lose the roof over their heads and they are able to still have a tent, right? And then now what's happening, at, certainly in Denver, is that people are homeless. And now the police are conducting homeless sweeps because there's an urban camping ban. So where are people supposed to go? If, I mean, if we think about this, it's like a quick toppling of the dominoes. And especially if, you know, don't, shouldn't we have empathy for people's plight when it's not that they're not working hard, it's that right now our society is kind of collapsing. There are a lot of people without jobs. Where is this going to go? Like, who knows? There's probably a few guaranteed safe jobs out there, but I don't know where this is going to go. Could this become the beginning of the next Great Depression? And how do we use this as an opportunity to make things better? Because as I joked in a text to you, Misasha, the other day, it's like, well, if like a global pandemic and a racial uprising isn't enough right now, what is it going to take to shake people out of their complacency and their focus just on their own life to look at the greater good? You know, we have been so wired, and I'm sorry I'm going off a little bit here, but like to believe in this idea of meritocracy and, and we work so hard and we're going to chase more money. I know people who also really don't believe, literally use the words, I don't believe in masks. I don't believe that it's, I need to look out for other people, but you forget like police officers, firemen, people like our streets are, so there's so many public services that we take for granted that are part of the communal good. And none of us do any of this alone. So what will it take for 
us to stop being like, yeah, I believe in ECE programs, but don't take that money out of my pocket. You know, it to saying it's okay for us to support some fundamentals. Let's look at what some of those fundamental services ought to be just like fire departments and well, police obviously questionable, but like there's some things that we as a society have agreed is good, you know, but we probably need to reimagine them, including the education system. I think also, you know, that I probably sent this to you in a text too, Sarah, but there was an article recently about, or maybe an email, about how when in our nation's history, we have had programs that specifically focused on helping underrepresented groups, we all did better as a whole. And I think that's really important to consider when people are thinking about, you know, Sarah, in that example that you said, well, you know, I think funding ECE is great. I just don't want it coming out of my pocket. But when we actually work as a society, as a community, as much broader states, nations to support people and try and equalize certain things, then we all do better. And, you know, and especially right now when we are, there is so much uncertainty and we don't know what it will look like if we can work on all of us trying to stay at this and get up to, you know, a more equal level, then maybe we actually all would benefit rather than, you know, creating that the valleys, those larger like to bring that more equal is going to benefit everyone. I know it is very anti-American in some ways to believe that (laughs) because of the meritocracy and the success, but that assumes that everyone starts from the same place. And we know that that's not the case. So, you know, that's just what you were saying made me think of. You know, my fear with that is that people who hear us right now talking about this might throw labels at us saying you're socialist, you're socialism, it's evil, it's awful. I think just about humanity. Like I understand the socialist argument, but I think that could be from also if people are going to really think or take stuff ahistorically like the Constitution, how our nation was founded. You know, I, I feel like there's a lot of arguments that can be made to take certain concepts and try and label them. But I think what we are talking about here is a much more fundamental, basic belief in the humanity of everyone. And I think that transcends, you know, systems in a lot of ways. And if we can't get all behind that, then we can't survive. So I think that it's very easy to label things. And I think we've seen that, you know, especially in 2020, it's super easy to label things. But we have to put the labels aside for a second here. You know, Masasha, I totally agree with you. I think what we need to stop and also think about is that this unequitable equity in the school system did not just appear with COVID. This has been going on for decades, and we haven't figured it out yet. And so I think, yes, COVID is bringing it back up again. I think this summer of the murder of George Floyd and the many other and all the riots and the, you know, people out trying to get the word out that black, all Black Lives Matters and just trying to get some kind of calmness in our Black community and some kind of respect is, sadly to me, this summer, it was, everybody was talking about it. And everybody was, you know, I drive through my area where I live and I see people that never had signs in the yard now have all Black Matters signs in their yard. But what does that mean? What action are we taking? It's so easy to put a sign up. So easy to say, yeah, we really need to help 
whole community and bring our community together. But what action? It's a lot of words that are being said. So as I drive through my neighborhood and I see so many signs, all Black Matters signs in people's yards that I've never seen signs before. And in one area, I feel it feels good to drive through my community and see that people put these signs out. And there are tons of them. And I, it feels good, especially in a community where there are not that many people of color. But my wonder is, putting a sign in your yard, yeah, that's the first step. What action are we taking as a community? What are we doing to make a difference? A sign is not going to make a difference. It makes people feel good, but we need to take some type of action. And that's where I'd like us to talk about next. Like, what can people do to take action? What should people be doing? You know, and you had mentioned briefly that one of the principles of the local schools is doing something. What is that doing something, just for practical conversation? Well, I think one is that they're making a commitment to making change. And they're working through that process. So it's not something that you can just say, today I'm going to make these commitments. Because once you say you're going to make a commitment, you have to be able to follow through with it. So I think, you know, just being able to say, we can do better. We've done these things, but we can do better. And I think, you know, getting together a group of people, I'm included in that, and sitting down and really talking about what are we going to do that's better. And I think that's what we're working on right now. We need to make change. And it all starts with the stakeholders of our school. And that includes like our PTA, our SAC committee. I mean, we only need to look at that and see, is that a diverse committee? Um, who's on that committee? And how are we making change and at doing fundraising? But really look at what we need to do as a school community to make change. I mean, I think that ties in so well to Misasha, your deep encouragement for me to listen to nice white parents. <laughs> because if you haven't, this is sort of where the whole conversation begins is that PTA. And what are things that parents who are involved in a school can do? Because I think depending on where you live, like even in Denver, you have one area where you can raise like $150,000 a year from a small segment of the population. And then you go like one neighborhood away and they're lucky if they can raise $2,000. And that's just like adjoining neighborhoods. So the money disparity is real. But within the PTA, what you said about having diverse representation, I think is really critical. And how I think in some schools in predominantly white areas, how do you have people of color feel welcome? What are you doing to reach out? Because I know even in our school, we've had conversations like that. And one of the things that has worked is having a teacher of color, a black woman, hold a black family night where they welcomed and helped each other connect because there are situations where I'm sure we've all felt it. You walk into like the school event and you're like, damn it, who do I talk to? Like, I don't know how to, where to go and who to talk to. And I feel uncomfortable. And then if you look different, that sort of magnifies that than the majority white community. It makes you feel even more sort of aware of your discomfort, you know, but within the PTA, I think you could encourage diverse representation. I think one of the things our school has done really well for the PTA, for example, if this helps other people is also really craft educational sessions, including talking about race head on. You know, you could bring in these conversations. I think the PTA and our school has also talked about and gotten funding for a diverse range of books for each of the classrooms. 
that go beyond Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. that really just talk about like life as a black boy or, you know, the hair book that me and Sasha likes or just really bringing in characters to each classroom that doesn't just get pulled out for Black History Month. I think also for independent schools, you know, we don't necessarily have PTAs. So in that case, you parents of children at independent schools, you can be that person. You can send that email like I did to our school asking about what the school has planned for if the school is looking into anti-racism education, like because I'm a pretty vocal member of that school community in that sense. And I think that when we are you know, thinking about speakers who come to the school, because we often don't have that except through independent organizations. Who are those speakers? What are we doing for the parents and the community who are diverse? And how are they feeling supported? And how are we having kids and parents talk about this? Because, you know, Sarah's heard all my stories about sort of the school and pushing to sort of open the narrative and make that more diverse. Because, your voice is going to matter there. Your voice matters in the PTA of public schools. Your voice matters as, you know, in independent schools if you don't have that PTA. Totally. Another thing our school did, which I was actually really, really impressed by, was an Ubuntu day where they actually went. It wasn't just like, let's focus on Black history. It was let's focus on the diverse culture of everybody in this school and bring a community meal or bring a meal to the community that represents your family history legacy. And they had performers from a black dance troupe, from like a mariachi band. Like they had a variety of performers perform authentic representations of different cultures and at the school, which I thought was quite interesting. Alicia's scratching her face though. What's your thoughts on that? Sarah, I'm going to be honest. You know, that's been happening at schools for so long and I call it a drive-by. And the reason I say that is because your school, I'm talking about in general, when schools say, we're going to do, you know, celebration one night and everybody brings food and we're going to talk about, you know, how you know, celebrate all different cultures. Well, that's the only thing that they do and they feel really good about it, right? And they talk about it. I say, you know, that's a drive-by. Like, you should be talking about different cultures. It's not a night celebration. It's the same as books on Black African-American people during the month of February. And you walk so when you see the books and everybody, they're all out. And then on February 29th or 28th, all those books get put back in a box and pushed away. So that cut out a little bit. But I think what you're saying is that it's like a performance piece. It's kind of like if I stop to give a homeless guy a sandwich and I take a photo of it and post it on Facebook and say, aren't I so nice? And then I never do it again for another year. I'd love to hear what suggestions you have that can be more year-round. You know, you mentioned bringing it into the curriculum. What does that look like, bringing diversity and cultural awareness and humanity into a curriculum? So what's important right now is making sure that in schools that we're really looking at the instruction of teachers and making sure that their curriculum is diverse and brings in all different cultures. And I know there's companies out there that will come out to the schools and do an audit of the curriculum. And we had that done in five or four of our schools. And to our surprise, even though we thought we were doing so great, some of our schools were not. But what I appreciate is that principals and teachers and staff were open to 
to be able to take this audit and really learn from that. And so we're really revamping our curriculum to make sure that we have books on different cultures. And I think one thing that's so important is that a lot of the books that we had and a lot of books that my youngest were reading were about people of color, but people of color that were struggling. And so it was always books about how the families were struggling instead of just a book about success or a book about something good. And so my daughter really started to think that all the people of color always struggled. And so really looking at that and making sure that our books on diversity, our books that we're teaching, are not just books on people struggling, but people's success and people as just other families. And so kids don't get that bias that if you're not white, you can't be successful. You know, we talk a lot about books on the show and Conscious Kid, and we'll talk to Barbershop Books next week. Like, we really do believe in the power of books. How beyond diverse representation in books do curriculum get affected? Like, is it like featuring a different story in a math equation? Like, how else do you think about equity in curriculum? Even in math, like really looking at, for example, I remember when I was working at a school that was mostly Hispanic, and then one of the math equations talked about that kids were going to sleep over at somebody's house and that they were having some kind of food, and I can't remember, but the child couldn't understand it because, one, in most Hispanic communities, kids don't sleep over at other people's homes with problems. We need to make sure that we're really diving into people's culture so that kids can mirror and can have a better understanding of what that math problem is. You know, it's, it's interesting because I think about us and we talked about our struggles with technology. And how some families really do struggle with that. And not saying that our families struggle with that, but even here, here we are, right? We're here right now recording a podcast and something broke down in the middle of our recording. And I think this is important and as uncomfortable as it might be to listen, imagine being a kid trying to learn right now on this technology and that being your 9 a.m. to noon that you're supposed to be live streaming classes and learning and as a child trying to figure out how to fix this because your parent is not home to help. And even if they were, they might not be able to. Like, imagine right now, my child is now knocking literally on our door with a post-it note saying something and asking for some favor. This is the reality of what, as privilege, we get to put up with and we have to endure. Imagine also having the pressure of survival, of thinking about what is this going to do to our family, not just with the luxury of let's look 10 years ahead, but like, how are we going to eat tomorrow? How are we going to make sure electricity stays on so that my kid can learn? There is a lot of pressure that when we are so caught up in our own heads thinking about, oh my gosh, how do I hold down my job and teach my kid? Yes, it is real. The stress is real, but there are people who have a lot of real problems that are go beyond our imagination right now. You know, I appreciate you sharing this, Sarah, because, you know, the frustration that I'm having just alone on this podcast and being able with my own technology. And I think just the last couple of days, my technology has been in and out and I feel incompetent. But yeah, I'm an educator. I've been on computers. I've done probably over a hundred Zooms this summer. And yet, 
sometimes things just don't work out. And it is so frustrating that I can't imagine being 7, 8, 10, 12 and having to try to figure this out. And then knowing that my teacher's telling me or sending my parents a text or an email that says that they weren't on or they didn't complete an assignment or the child doesn't know what the assignment is because the equipment didn't work. And so they don't get it in, right? I looked at my child's attendance, you know, just on her report card, I just looked in, in the system and it showed that she missed 50 days of school during COVID. My daughter never missed a day. So maybe she didn't push the right button or maybe she didn't do something correct. But nobody reached out and said, hey, your child's not on, but she was on. And not that it matters. I mean, I, I kind of laughed at it. But 50 days of absence, there's no way my daughter did that. And so just think the impact of what technology does for kids and what's going to happen during remote learning for kids when technology does break down. I think that's so powerful. I think this is, you know, we are three adults on a call and with these issues and hearing the story, Alicia, of your daughter and that 50, you know, absences and think if and you went to look to check and think of all those parents who don't go check and aren't even aware or, you know, this isn't their first language. So they're just trying to even they can't they don't have the language skills to even know what to look for, understand it when it's being shown to them. And so I think that's just one really great example of what is happening in our system that we don't even know is happening and how that could be impacting much further down the line as well. Is there anything else we need to think about in terms of what parents can do? What can someone who's listening to this show do in these unprecedented times, both like on a tomorrow basis and then on a big picture campaign for change basis? I think parents just have to get involved. I can't really put my finger on what that involvement is, but get involved in all aspects of the school, making sure that all kids are able to access quality education because right now we're so invested in trying to figure it out for our own family. And it is sad for me to say that because that's not what I'm about and that's not what I believe, but I also want to be realistic. And so I think, Sarah, this conversation as far as what can families do to really dive deep into helping and to supporting our community is going to need to be discussed and planned in a month or two once things start to come down and families feel comfortable with their own kids and their own kids learning. Darn it. (laughs) It's so true. And I'd like to be like all hopeful and leave people with a sense of information and learning I think one thing we can leave people with is just awareness, right? Like if you are not thinking about these issues right now, then, you know, like we've said this whole podcast, there are a lot of things going on. But even if there are no easy, you know, roadmaps right now, because there isn't, but to keep these issues, to keep these questions in the front of your mind while you are trying to get your kids set up, while you are watching, if you don't have kids, you know, how your school in your community are getting set up or, or reading about it and getting more educated about the situations facing your specific community. So in a month or two when you might have that space, that ability to understand how things look, then you are already thinking about this. So it's not just a catch-up game. It's not the first time you're thinking about it. I like that. 
I think making sure that families are aware, I think is so important right now. So we have, I mean, I think right now, what you said is so important. We have to make sure that families are aware, yes. And that's, it stays at the forefront of their mind so that it's not forgiven. I, my biggest concern is that what happened this summer, everybody, like I said, everybody was engaged and talked about it. And as you know, you know, phones were blowing up and people really wanted to hear about how to, to especially for Black families, how you feel about what's going on and George Floyd's murder and all this. And, and that happened for like two months. And now people really aren't speaking about it. And so how do we make sure that going into COVID, going into remote learning, knowing that not all children are going to have access to quality education or access to all these extra things that families are able to pay for and get their kids engaged in. What can we do to plan for the future, meaning the very near future, to support families that can't afford it, to make sure that their kids are also getting a good education and have the technology and have the ability to be able to access their education. I love that. Thank you. I think that is really critical for us to remember this and not put it on a shelf and forget about it because we're all caught up in our own worlds now. So thank you for making that point. And thank you for being here for this conversation. Thank you. I appreciate both of you for allowing me this opportunity. Hi, I'm Lisa Guyman, and I have been teaching Reiki and meditation for 22 years. And in these times right now, it's more important than ever to find a way to go within and to experience greater peace and calm and to remain optimistic engaged and present. Whenever we can be in the present moment, we are more in a place of power and also in a place where we're able to be more effective in the world and help to affect positive change. You can learn more about my practice and my workshops at lisagaiman.com or by visiting journeyintomeditation.com. I'll be guiding you here in a meditation. Part of the meditation involves some self-inquiry. When these questions arise, just allow the answers to float into your consciousness allowing the answers to come through from a deeper level of your being. We'll go ahead and get started with the meditation. So either sitting or lying down. And close your eyes. And just Start by becoming aware of your breathing, not needing to change your breath in any way, but just simply observe. Noticing some quality of your breath 
and how it moves through your body. Perhaps noticing the expansion of your rib cage on the inhale. And how your rib cage relaxes on the exhale. Or maybe even tuning into the space between the inhale and exhale. Perhaps visualizing a wave rolling into the shore on the inhale. and a wave rolling out from the shore on the exhale. Or maybe tuning in to the temperature of the inhale and the temperature of the exhale. Also noticing where in your body you can relax more. We often hold tightness, tension out of habit. So in particular, relax your face Relax your jaw. Bringing your awareness to your heart center. Really dropping into your heart. The heart that is full of compassion and love. The heart that is connected to the community. And think of those that you love. 
Think of yourself with love and compassion. And from your heart consciousness and your inner wisdom, ask yourself, how can I serve? How can I help? What can I do for myself that would allow me to be of greater service? How can I help? How can I serve my inner circle? How can I help? How can I serve the community? How can I help and serve the world? Visualize or intend healing light, love and compassion for yourself.
intend healing light and love for your inner circle, for your loved ones. Intend healing, light, and love for your community. Intend healing, love, and light for the whole world. Sending light and love out to this planet. Send love and light out into the universe. This amazing, infinite universe. sending this love and light to your amazing, infinite self. Becoming aware of your breathing again. Feeling the air on your skin. And set an intention for your day. And when you're ready to, you can open your eyes. Namaste.